Hello, and welcome once again to the Ethics Lab podcast. This is episode five. I'm Dr. George Sakaritis. I'm here with Dr. Greg Peterson, and we have a special guest, Dr. Mike Hildreth. He's a mosquito expert, so you might wonder what that has to do with ethics, but we'll hopefully make that clear as we move along here. We'll be talking about gene drives and the ethics surrounding that issue today. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's a little cold out. We don't have a whole lot of mosquitoes uh, buzzing to keep uh, me busy, but uh, we've got other things we can work on. And Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I won't say I'm enjoying the cold, but I like to ski. So we have lots of snow and that makes the cold a little bit more bearable. That is probably true. I think I would say I've acclimated. It's uh, When it's 10 degrees, I feel like it's warm. So I guess that's a good sign. <laughs> well, it's true that uh, you know once you've experienced minus 15 or minus 30, it gives you a whole different view on, on, on 10 degrees. So... Well, we should uh, maybe get started here. So we want to, to thank Mike for joining us today. As George mentioned, uh, Mike spends a lot of time uh, thinking about mosquitoes and researching mosquitoes and capturing mosquitoes and doing all sorts of things with them. And we can maybe just begin with a little bit of background. So um, Mike, uh, how about you tell us something about your research and, and how you got interested in it? So for about the last um, 18 years, I've been working on mosquitoes. Uh, my background is really in, in parasites in general, and, uh, and so I worked on a, a, a number of different types of parasites, but when they were getting ready for the West Nile outbreak to maybe hit South Dakota, I got recruited by the Department of Health to help them uh, with some of the mosquito issues. And so uh, we've been working mostly on the species of mosquito that transmits uh, West Nile in this area, and um, looking at factors that influence their ability to transmit uh, the disease to, to people. We just recently released a um, prediction model that gave to the Department of Health that allows them to uh, anticipate years when the West Nile outbreak would be particularly bad. And they use not only weather data, but also the mosquito data that we collect uh, in order to do that. And so that part is kind of coming to an end, but we have a lot of other questions to work on. Okay, so uh, you mentioned parasites. Uh, as philosophers, we often hear that attached to us. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding, folks. Or maybe not uh, in the current climate. Well, so mosquitoes, I mean, everyone knows about mosquitoes in one way or another. Been bit by a mosquito, etc. But how serious of a problem are mosquitoes to human health in, in general and, and maybe as an actuality? How dangerous of a threat are mosquitoes to the health of the human population? Yeah, okay. Um, well, you know, there's actually um, a list uh, that people, that researchers have generated in terms of which are the most uh, dangerous uh, species uh, to humans. And interestingly enough, humans are the most dangerous to other humans. The, the calculation I saw uh, was that about 400,000 people each year die as a result of human interactions. And, and so that, they're number two. Number one on the top 10 list uh, actually are mosquitoes. And according to the, to the calculations, about 700,000 people die each year as a result of mosquitoes really in the transmission of diseases. 
So uh, almost uh, three quarters of a million people um, are, are uh, no longer here because of, of mosquito activity. And so they're number one on our top 10 list. Malaria alone, which we don't really deal with to a large degree here in, uh, in South Dakota, accounts for uh, over half of those deaths. And so the Bill Gates, um, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation have uh, put a lot of money in. They're still um, working to get a handle on some of these uh, problems. In, in South Dakota, what we really see in terms of mosquito risks are associated with West Nile virus. Nationally, we see maybe 100, uh, over 100 deaths each year, and South Dakota contributes uh, usually three or four deaths uh, to that number. Interestingly enough, Brown County, which is the county that Aberdeen is, is in, oftentimes will have the highest incidence. Now, incidence is numbers of cases per, per person, but the highest incidence of West Nile virus in the world. And uh, so that has stimulated a lot of uh, our uh, research activity uh, in that area. And then, you know, um, last couple years, two years ago or three years ago, we, you know, had that big Zika scare. And, um, and so there was an awful lot of attention paid to the mosquito species that transmit uh, that particular disease. Fortunately, it never accounted to, to you know, much uh, human suffering in this part of the country uh, or in, in the United States, but it certainly has caused problems elsewhere. Can you give us an idea of, of like, are these diseases coming from just a few species of mosquitoes? Uh, just give our listeners an idea of, like, I know there's a lot of mosquito species. So is this kind of localized? Is this widespread? Could you just say a little bit about that? Well, uh, any guesses on how many mosquito species we have here in South Dakota? I'm just going to guess three. <laughs> I'm going to guess four, just because I think I'm going to be closer if I guess four. <laughs> There's actually 43 um, uh, species that have been described from South Dakota. So you're, you're both really wrong. Uh, but, um, but you're right in a sense that there's maybe three, three four um, species that really accounts for 90% uh, of, of the mosquitoes that are here. So, so in the case of malaria, malaria is only transmitted by species within the genus Anopheles. And so there's you know, two dozen species that account for all of that uh, mortality. And, so, and then in the case of like uh, the Zika, it has its own species, uh, Aedes aegypti and, and Aedes albopictus that are responsible for that. Fortunately, we don't have either of those two species um, even close to our area, and that's why there's no risk of Zika um, in South Dakota for, for you uh, people interested. So that, I think, actually gets to a, an important point when we get to a little later. When we look at the mosquito populations and their diversity, and we find that a, like a small group of mosquitoes are dangerous. Uh, so does that mean that that's just a sort of bit of luck that uh, for any given disease, uh, some mosquitoes are more dangerous than others? Or is it that there's just something about those particular species that, that make them more dangerous the way that they interact with human biology? Well, so um, in order for a disease to be transmitted by mosquitoes, they have to, um, the mosquito has to ingest that infectious agent, 
And then the, the infectious agent has to travel from the gut of the mosquito, that's where the blood is. It actually has to be able to travel to the salivary glands. You know, we have our own salivary glands that produce saliva. Mosquitoes have their own salivary glands. In fact, when they bite you, they are spitting into you. And as they spit into you, um, they are spitting these infectious agents. And so in order for the a species to, to function as a, as a vector, it has to get from the gut to the salivary glands. When HIV first emerged out in the 70s, people were freaking out because they thought, oh, is it possible that it's being transmitted to, by, uh, by mosquitoes? And so they squashed mosquitoes that had fed on an, on an AIDS patient. And sure enough, they found the virus, but they had to actually dissect out the salivary glands and then test those. And, and those were negative, and so they knew that it couldn't be transmitted. Can you imagine trying to, to dissect the salivary glands out of a mosquito? But they had people that were doing that to, to prove that it wasn't being transmitted. So, it, so it's just a, maybe a bit of luck then about which d mosquito is dangerous for which kind of disease. So it's not like any mosquito is sort of like inherently more dangerous because they're like an uber salivation machine or something like that. So, so there are, um, you know, it, it, the mosquito has to get infected itself. And so there are, are immune factors in the mosquito that determine that, uh, that. And so like malaria, there's a whole group of mosquitoes in that genus Anopheles that transmit it. Um, for uh, encephalitis kinds of problems like West Nile virus, it tends to be members of the genus Culex. And, and so there's a, most of the time it's a, it's, you know, you could call it luck but it's a susceptibility within the physiology of the mosquito that allows it to become infected by whatever infectious agent you're wanting to, to, to talk about. And then that allows them to be the vector. Well, let's go ahead and move to this new gene drive technology. So for our listeners, could you just take a little bit to describe what the gene drive technology is and, and how it works? Well, so, so gene drive is actually a relatively new word in, in the sense that now um, some things that we've been trying to do now has a term for it, and uh, that term is gene drive. Essentially what you're trying to do is to create mutations in an organism. Th these are generally lethal or at least mutations that are desirous to whatever you're wanting to do. And normally, like if you put a mutation into an animal, it tends to be recessive. So like, you know, blondness is a recessive trait. And so um, you, you know that if a couple gets married, one's uh, blonde and one's got dark hair, then most of the kids tend to, to have darker hair. But there will be a couple uh, maybe that have blonde hair. So that's a re type uh, example of recessive tape. And these mutations tend to be recessive. And so when you put them into the population, it's hard to get them going, and they tend to, to kind of uh, die out. But this uh, gene drive technique is essentially pushing these mutations into the population in a way that allows them to be the predominant uh, mutation or the predominant characteristic. And we did this with like screw worms um, in, the, in the 60s. We would um, put like sterile males out into the environment and then they would mate with females 
And once they've mated, then they wouldn't mate anymore, but there would not be any offspring. And they had really great success. They eliminated screw worms. I bet you guys didn't know that from the United States uh, as a result of the. But it took a ton of male screw worms to, to, uh, to achieve that. Gene drive is able to do that with a very small population. It's a, it's a genetic trick uh, that they've done to accomplish this. And recently, so a few researchers have discovered this. It's, a, it's an immune response in bacteria that they've tricked, where, where essentially if a bacteria gets a virus, so bacteria have their own parasites, and they get parasitized by a virus, if a virus comes into to a lot of the bacteria, this system that we have co-opted for our own use would cleave, would, would cut the, the, the viral um, DNA to get rid of it. And so now they're using, they've, they've taken this system, and now they developed it for, um, for insects or for actually any organism that, that reproduces sexually so that we can essentially make a recessive trait the dominant trait, so that if an insect mates with a, that's, has this mutation, mates with another insect, that insect will have, that new insect will have that trait. And so it, it, what it's doing is it's suddenly exploding that mutation into that population in a way that we never could do before uh, this t technology. It's called CRISPR-Cas9 is this system um, and it's being used um, in a lot of genetic engineering um, systems. It's not just for gene, for, for gene drive, it can be used uh, to manipulate genetics in a lot of different um, systems as well. So as I understand it, uh, so when I was doing a little bit of research on this, it, it, it looked like there's at least two sort of major groups in the U.S. that are working on this with respect to mosquitoes. And so one group is focusing on looking at creating mosquitoes that are incapable of breeding, basically. So they, they're sterile in the way that you said that the worms were earlier. Another group is looking at trying to create mosquitoes that are, for instance, malaria resistant. So that has to do with malaria specifically. Are those the sort of dominant approaches right now towards mosquitoes? Yeah, I mean, I, I think those are the the two primary ones. You know, th there's um, essentially anything that can be controlled by a by a set of genes can be manipulated in this way. So there are no limits, and, and so you could um, have mosquitoes. Uh, there's a there's a, a a researcher that's working on what factors cause mosquitoes to feed on humans. And so you could find those, and, and most of the vectors that we worry about are human feeders. And so if you can convince the mosquito not to, to eat us, we can get, you know, we could have West Nile in the birds as much as you want, but it wouldn't then get transmitted to, to humans. And you'd also want to probably take care of the horses since West Nile caused a lot of problems in horses. But, but it's, you know, so, so any, any factor that is genetically controlled you now have the way the, the the means to play around and drive those characteristics into that uh, into that insect. Most of the research that's been done has been done has been with insects, and most of the money has gone towards the those people that are working on mosquitoes for human health reasons. But you know we could do this with uh, with other organisms. So like in the case of malaria, I mentioned you know over half of the deaths are caused by by malaria, 
Malaria actually is a sexually reproducing organism. And so you could, act, you could say, well, we're, we we're going to let the mosquitoes alone, but we could maybe go in and do some of this gene drive on the, on the parasite itself and uh, have a, a direct effect that way. So we're really you know, looking at a biological revolution. The scary part is that there is also a lot of potential risks. Anytime you have something that's this powerful, you worry about you know, the ways in which uh, th this could get you know, messed up. And, and we do mess things up sometimes. Speaking of messing things up, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of great applications, uh, it sounds like, from this gene drive technology. And it's been around a little while, and you've talked about that. But what are the risks involved? I mean, we're, we're an ethics podcast. We want to see what concerns might be related to this. What are the risks involved with gene drive technology? Well, yeah, and, and so part of the, you know, the, I said it's a very powerful technology. Part of that power means that once you put a, say, say you, you make a, a mutation in a, in a mosquito, and once you send even just a few mosquitoes out, it will immediately start to take over that population. And it's not easy, if, if at all possible, because there's, there's not a lot of research being done on pulling it back. And so you would actually have to create another gene drive to counteract the first gene drive. And then, you know, then what ramifications could that create? So, for example, let's say you, you put a thousand um, mosquitoes with this mutation, this with the CRISPR-9 type system, into the population. It's possible that you would eliminate that species of mosquito. And, and so then the question is, who cares? <laughs> would, I mean, we, I spent a lot of time thinking about ways to, to get, you know, populations of mosquitoes down. But I also know that there are certain things, certain organisms, bats, birds, uh, et cetera, that will be feeding on those mos mosquitoes. It's only the females that take blood meals. I don't know if you guys knew that, but, it, but uh, they're the only ones, uh, the only uh, member of the species that, that are sucking blood. They need that to produce their eggs. Males are nectar feeders. So um, they would be considered pollinators. And right now we're, you know, the bee populations are struggling. And so, and so you know, the ethicists need to start to think about, you know, what's more important. I mean, if we are cutting our insecticide use, then maybe some of the bee problems would go away. We would have more pollinators to make up for the males that would, you know, so it just gets so complicated. The potential, you know, when you say what could go wrong, it's uh, what we're really scared about is we don't even know what could potentially go wrong. They, the idea is that these should stay within a species, but they're not even sure about that. And so, you know, maybe you wipe out not just that one species of mosquito, but you could um, get gene exchanges that allow it to get into um, cl other closely related species. And, and so we don't, we don't know, you know, to what degree are mosquitoes controlling because of the diseases they're calling uh, other potential pathogens or um, organisms that we don't want to be present. The larval stages of these mosquitoes live in ponds, etc., and they are big consumers. Uh, they eat things as well. So it's not just the adults we have to think about. We have all those other things as well. So those are the main things. 
Well, that um, that speaks directly to the ethical issues, and the uh, so one way I come at this is from work in environmental ethics. So, in, when you say teach a course in environmental ethics or read in environmental ethics, the the sort of first stop is to think, well, we're against extinction. Extinction is a bad thing. We look at you know particularly uh, what comes to mind is is warm cuddly mammals so we talk about polar bears going extinct and we talk about uh, maybe wolves going to extinct or lions or uh, even other sorts of creatures like marmots that live in the mountains and this sort of thing or, or maybe even we might call charismatic insects like butterflies so there's a lot of discussion now about monarch butterflies and decline in their populations and of course monarch butterflies are kind of charismatic insects right there they're beautiful they have those beautiful wings and people go to butterfly houses and this sort of thing but mosquitoes are are not charismatic they're not particularly pretty and of course they're also dangerous so lions are dangerous what we think of lions as having some positive attributes that might suggest that we want to keep them around. So when we talk about the value of a species like mosquitoes, our first instinct is maybe to say, yeah, a world without mosquitoes would be great because then I could go outside and enjoy it. And, and maybe we should just get rid of the wood ticks too, right? Because they're, they're also unpleasant. And so when we look at these gene drives, gene drive technologies, particularly those that are aimed at, say, elimination of a mosquito population, there's maybe a kind of instinctive reaction to say, oh, that would be so great if there were just no mosquitoes around in the world. But you're suggesting something uh, maybe a little bit different, that when we look at the ecological impacts, so when we keep in mind that, that mosquitoes just don't impact human beings, but they impact other organisms sometimes negatively because they transmit diseases to horses and other and birds and other mammals birds not being mammals but to other creatures as well so they they transmit diseases but on the other hand they have these positive impacts at least some of them they serve as both pollinators and food so you're suggesting it's a little bit more complicated than just saying a world without mosquitoes would be awesome well, yeah, and also provides me with a job, so, <laughs> so I... Uh, there's also that. <laughs> although there's a lot of other blood-sucking things that I could work on and, and actually do. So, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, I, I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't look at this possibility. And, and in fact, I would even go beyond and say, I don't think it's a matter of if, I think it's a matter of when they're going to they're gonna start trying this gene drive and and uh, right now there are, are there are workshops eth ethics workshops going on where um, mostly run by scientists which is a little bit scary that are trying to look at okay what is it that we need to do before we start releasing these in a trial basis so for example you know one of the big things would be to put it to release it into an island where you could control things a little bit better, at least initially, to kind of look at at uh, some of the the, uh, the side effects. And so, I think I think what the scientists are, are saying, wanting to, to to say, is that we have these capabilities now, and they're real. I mean, it's not, this isn't science fiction. This is this, this gene drive stuff. Um, the you know they're, they're showing this under laboratory conditions. It's extremely powerful. And so then the question is, okay, are you guys 
comfortable with with us going down this path. And if there aren't people that are raising concerns, then the then the public health side of thing is probably going to drive it into that direction. The other thing that's happening is right now we're running out of insecticides. So we've been able to control things like malaria to some degree in, in West Nile by uh, you know by using the insecticides. Even in South Dakota, we've we've uh, done a little bit of, of work and shown that the mosquitoes aren't that aren't as as uh, susceptible to the pyrethrins as as what we or the permethrins as 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 we you know probably started with, and so then you know if we're losing the insecticides, what do we do? Do we let even more people die of malaria or whatever uh, as a result? And, and so you know my hope is that we can get you know really more ethicists that and philosophers that are becoming more knowledgeable of this included with ecologists that are able to look at the bigger picture in terms of the you know the potential ramifications of of each of these things so that we're putting an awful lot of thought into this before we start turning these things uh, loose because once they once they're out there I don't think there's going to be a lot of opportunities to pull them back I'm not seeing anything that that and maybe what we do is set up as as part of the stipulation before it gets released, we have to have an antidote um, that that is already built and ready to go. Okay, Mike. So you've opened the door to a discussion on ethics. Of course, it's an ethics podcast, so I guess we already opened that door. Uh, but what role do you see ethicists playing in the future of gene drive technology? Because as you said, once it's out there, it might be tough to pull back. That's obviously a concern, but what other concerns do you see with that? Well, and, and you know, as a scientist, um, I'm maybe not even the best person to ask about that um, in the sense that I, I think scientists really, on, on average, don't get a whole lot of philosophy or ethics training. And so, you know, you're, you're essentially asking scientists to be making some of these decisions that are related to policies that we use for governing. And so, you know, a matter of how do we, you know, communicate some of these issues to the general public, to the politicians, et cetera. A place where, I mean, just to give you an example, let, let's imagine that somebody, you know, I, I'm, I'm applying for a grant to keep my lab functioning. And along the way, somebody is asking me, you know, how important is your disease to, um, you know, the betterment of mankind? And the question would be, you know, hard for me to answer honestly without some bias because my function, my, my grant functioning capabilities is related to my job. And so like for the Zika, the Zika issue illustrates this where if you know the biology of that organism, you, you know that the chances of a U.S. outbreak was unbelievably small. And yet the funding went off the, the, uh, out of the roof uh, during that time, and there, I know that there were mosquito biologists that were talking up those species as uh, this big potential problem, and their funding, you know, went up as a result. And so, what we need are are people kind of between the scientists and uh, the decision makers that are trying to kind of help uh, balance that. 
Part of that is, is understanding the biology. So the ethicists need to understand uh, at least enough of the biology to, to be able to follow along, but uh, th then they need to be able to express it more in ethical terms. Because ultimately that's what this, you know, the policies come down to. It's, it's not you know, policies based on biology. It's, it's you know, policies that are based on the potential ethical advantages and disadvantages that come into that. And then who is going to be you know, kind of guiding that process? Scientists are probably not the best people to do that. And so um, you know, for our own biology majors, for example, it would make a lot of sense for them to, to be picking up, especially if they're interested in, in getting involved in anything related to policy development, and, and that's pretty common, you know, even in businesses, uh, that, that becomes part of that, to, to pick up some, um, some classes that will equip those in ways that, you know, that I am not really equipped for. Well, you're singing our song. <laughs> uh, so th that's, that's, of course, a major uh, focus of our ethics lab here at SESU is to work uh, collaboratively, collaboratively with uh, scientists and folks in other fields. And it seems like that's um, an upside all around, that if we can get people thinking more carefully about decisions before they make them, then we all benefit. So maybe we should conclude. So any last comments from George or, or Mike? Well, I'm going to give Mike the last word, but I'll, okay. I'll say something here. So, I mean, this is very, very informative. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast for this. I think people obviously interact with mosquitoes every day. Well, not when it's negative 20 degrees outside, but uh, every year, at least in the summer. And it's, it's a nuisance. We don't think about kind of the larger ramifications of the ecosystem and the ethics involved or connected to that. So thanks for being here. I want to give you the last word. Do you have anything you want to share with us before we head out here? Well, I think maybe two uh, words of advice. Number one, um, be sure and stay warm. And uh, in just a few months, we will have some uh, mosquitoes buzzing around. Um, and uh, there are, uh, the, the South Dakota Department of Health has some really good resources that are available to you. If you have questions related to mosquitoes or public health uh, aspects of mosquito control, et cetera, you can go on their website and they would uh, be able to provide a lot of those answers. And if uh, people have questions about mosquitoes, I uh, live here at South Dakota State and um, can get to me through our uh, website, uh, through our biology, microbiology website. Okay, excellent. That sounds like an open invitation. So uh, we have an expert here. Take him up on that invitation. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Ethics Lab podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and we recommend highly that you do so because we need the numbers desperately. I'm just kidding. But we do want you to follow us and join in on the ethics conversations that we're having pretty much every day. Otherwise, as I always say, stay ethical and commit yourself to virtue so that you may flourish in your lifetime. <laughs>